Smart Podcast, Episode Four. Imagine for a moment this scene you, a fox, and a frog are each standing at the bank of a large pond. A fish leaps from the water and splashes down, sending ripples in every direction, which eventually lap over your toes, the fox's claws, and the frog's face. There is a concept in both science and philosophy called naive realism that suggests, in a moment like this one, the fish hanging in the air, the splashdown, the concentric ripples, all of that appears in your mind exactly as it really is. Some would go so far as to say, the frog and the fox also see the exact same scene in the exact same way that you do. That is to say, objective reality, the stuff outside of your head, matches perfectly one-to-one with subjective reality, the stuff you feel, see, touch, taste, and smell, inside your head. Now, you're going to meet many people today who actually, you know, they still think this is true, that what you see is what truly is that um, what goes into your eyeballs is what is out there. But science has obliterated this idea over the last century. The idea of naive realism probably seems funky to you, and that's, that's good. You're in good company because scientific evidence suggests that the frog sees and experiences a completely different world from moment to moment than the fox. And both the fox and the frog experience you know, something completely unlike what you experience. When all three of you look upon the same scene, the reality inside each head is different. Therefore, objective reality, the really real world, can never actually be experienced as it is. The fish and the pond and the ripples, all of that, it really does exist, of course. But all we can ever know about those things are what gets into our brain via our imperfect senses and what our brains create out of those signals. Every subjective reality is different. All reality is constructed All reality is virtual. I am your host, David McCraney, and on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a different topic in the realm of self-delusion. This week, we are discussing the self. In a moment, we will interview psychologist Bruce Hood, and after that, there will be cookies, which will make sense to you in a moment, and if you've been here before, it's better than ever. So first, though, let's consider this statement. Ready? Here we go. This sentence is false. Think about that for a minute. Ponder it. Let's expand it. There's a book the, that that explores this topic called Godel Escherenbach, An Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstetter. Um, but let's, let's ponder it uh, outside of the way he's pondering it. Let's think about it in just the sense of constructed reality. This sentence is false. All right, let's change that to Uh, The following sentence is true. The previous sentence is false. Now, either way you go about this um, logic paradox, it's going to boggle you because there's no way to resolve it. It just doesn't work out, okay? Uh, If I say this sentence is false, that means that it's not false, which means it's true. But if it's true, that means it's false. 
right? So what it demonstrates is there are, are certain ways of thinking that we are unable to, uh, to cross over into, that the brain naturally has limits. Language is, um, is limited in certain ways, that it can't paint a perfect picture of reality. We can't communicate with words and language and thoughts um, a perfect representation of objective reality because you can see just within that one sentence that we've been able to break the system, that there's that's an error in the code right there. There are limitations, there are borders. And then another demonstration would be, say, um, imagine a color you've never seen before. Well, it's just, it's just simply impossible. Or um, try to uh, describe to me the way a tomato tastes without mentioning the word tomato, without mentioning the taste of anything else. Um, just describe to me, uh, perhaps, um, I want you to think about the color red and explain to me what it looks like, but assume that I'm blind and I've never seen a color before. See, they're just natural limitations into the way we describe reality. And if there are natural limitations in how we describe reality, then there are probably natural limitations in how we create reality inside our own head, right? I mean, I can imagine a 25-headed baby rising from the ocean, spitting forth beef jerky and pooping rainbows, but I can't imagine that baby in any color that I haven't already seen before. And I might be able to imagine the taste of that beef jerky, but I'm not going to be able to describe that taste to you in the context of anything but other tastes. So, what this really shows us is that um, since reality is constructed and is constructed on the fly and it's impossible to construct reality in perfection, that there are natural things that we imagine and think that aren't completely as they are. And one of those things is the self. Well, that's the opinion of a group of scientists. And I say group, I mean a movement really of uh, psychologists, neuroscientists um, and philosophers who um, now say they're solving the, the age-old mind-body um, mind problem by saying that, the, well, there just isn't a self. There isn't a you in there, really. That the concept of the self is a mental construct that is designed to sort of serve as an avatar between you and the outside world. Um, it's a process, it's a medium by which you make sense of the inputs and make sense of the inner world's interaction with the outer world, that it provides a sort of cohesive structure, a lattice, a skeleton for reality, which you can then, you know, operate this weird thing called the body and the mind. But there is no little person inside your head who is watching a screen, the Cartesian theater of the mind, as they say. Um, because if there was this little guy in there, this homunculus, then there would have to be a screen in his head and then a screen in his head and, and ad infinitum. What neuroscience actually says is that the, uh, the, the mind is a noisy group of committees who are all um, in struggle with each other for control of the organism. And uh, the self is just a way to sort of uh, bring all that together. The self is a construct, it is an idea, it is a dream, it is an imaginary thing. Uh, and it's not real, but not real is, not, is sort of a weird way to put that. It's not real in the same way that a dream or a thought or an idea or a concept or a memory is not real. Um, it's, of course, a real thing, 
but it's an experience that is generated by, by the brain, by nervous tissue inside the skull. It's not a, uh, the self doesn't have any tangible anything. It's, it's more of a tool that is used by the organism to uh, stay stable and to move around and not freak out. And the mind being a group of committees fighting each other, the self is a way to sort of bring all that together. So that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Bruce Hood, who has written The Self-Illusion, a book that explores the idea of whether or not the self is real. He's the director of the Bristol Cognitive Development Center in the Experimental Psychology Department at the University of Bristol, and, uh, and he's a research fellow at Cambridge and University College London, and a visiting scientist at MIT. Uh, he's, he won the Alfred Sloan Fellowship in Neuroscience, and just he's really personable uh, very cool, very charismatic, has appeared in several uh, programs talking about the mind, and you can find those online if you look for them. And he's just super cool. So uh, we're going to talk to him about whether or not the self is real and uh, what all this means. So let's pick his brain. Bruce, in your book, you propose that science has uncovered a lot of evidence to suggest our sense of self is an illusion. What mm. do you what do you mean when you say uh, illusion? Well, I think that's probably the first big question um, that people ask me because um, there are different connotations of the word illusion. Um, I prefer the, the the idea that an illusion is an experience that is not what it seems. So I'm not saying that there isn't an experience of having a, a self. Uh, but that ex experience is, is, is um, you know, it's not what it seems is what I'm arguing. So um, we know this really uh, is true because if you think about um, other kinds of illusions such as visual illusions, uh, we can measure, you know, two lines that look different and show they're in fact the same or, or vice versa. Or we can, we can, you know, we can see uh, figures which aren't really there. So th this is a, a common experience in, in visual perception to talk about uh, the way that uh, uh, we can see illusions. But in fact, a lot of perception is illusory um, because the brain is always constructing uh, some interpretation of the event, and that interpretation is not always faithfully true. So there is an argument to 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 sort of even claim that actually all of perception is an illusory kind of experience to some extent. And that's not saying that there's no connection to reality at all, but it is one which is interpreted and abstracted. So um, what I'm saying is the self, uh, this common experience that everyone has, uh, typically. Uh, we, we usually think of ourselves as inhabiting a body, being coherent, being an individual, um, having free will. All these components of, of the self is, is our common experience. But I would argue that the science reveals that each of those to some extent is illusory. So when I move my arm uh, mm. and I will myself to move my arm, what is doing the willing? That's right. And this is this is also one of the big questions. You know, who who it's very difficult to, to actually not use the language of self all the time when we're we're thinking about this. Um, well, in case of moving your arm, um, there is a series of unconscious processes. Um, you know, an example came to mind triggered by uh, what I had just said. Um, you felt of an example to to address that. Uh, probably one that you had been mulling over, not necessarily consciously, but one which had been processed. And at some point, this uh, uh, this urge to move your arm happened. You're probably familiar with um, the work of Leibet, um, who's shown that motor acts, typically uh, such as wanting to move your arm, 
um, the conscious point where you when you think you're doing it uh, is a good half second after your brain has already prepared the the action. So in that particular instance, that would be an example where your your conscious self is actually not initiating the movement. It's actually occurring uh, to some extent after it. Um, I'm not suggesting that all actions and thoughts work that way. Uh, I'm just saying that there can be quite a disconnect between what you think you're doing and what's actually happening. That's probably one of the weirdest things in the world is to is when you read about the um, the fact that there was something happening before you realized it. Whenever you uh, whenever you move your parts of your body around, and it makes it seem it's a pretty creepy concept, really. It's a pretty creepy concept, but you know we shouldn't be too surprised. And the, I mean, the thing is that. Um, we experience consciousness as um, immediate, don't we? I mean, we, we have this sense of being in the here and now. Um, but conscious experiences typically build up over time. Uh, and certainly motor acts have to be built up over time. So there isn't a, a single point where suddenly something enters consciousness, as it were. So I think that that's, again, part of the illusion. Not only that we're uh, uh, willing the action, but... To some extent, uh, it's, it's taking some time to, to emerge. I agree. These are difficult ideas, and they certainly don't seem to fit with everyone's common experience. But, of course, most of, a lot of our common experience is not what it seems. If you just take vision again, uh, you know, we see the world as, as a unified, rich, detailed uh, environment. But, of course, you're only really processing the, the central part of your visual field. There are two black holes the size of tennis balls, often, which is what corresponds to your blind spot. And, of course, every time you move your eyes, you're effectively blind. So, um, so every time you make an eye movement, your brain shuts off the visual information. But you're never aware of that. Uh, when you add it up, you're blind for about two or three hours of every waking day. But you would never know that. Yes, and uh, in the book you talk about uh, look, in a, look in a mirror and move your eyes from side to side and you, you're unable to see the motion, but if you look at another person and ask them to do the same thing, you will, yeah. you will be able to see the motion. So you should ask yourself, why is, it, why is my brain editing that out? Exactly. It's very creepy, isn't it? I mean, you, you basically get them to focus on their left eye, then focus on, the right, on their right eye, and then move backwards and forwards. Uh, it's not something people really immediately – when they see it, then they think something's very spooky. <laughs> uh, but yes, the brain has to do that because otherwise you get seasick because um, the visual – if you think about it, it's like taking a camera and, and panning very quickly. The whole field would blur. So you'd be constantly seeing this blurred image. So the brain edits that out in order to maintain the perception of a coherent world. Could you talk a little bit about your hamster study? Uh, just sort of explain the, your uh, interesting copying study and the way people react to it. Right. Well, this is still under review, so we're, we're, I, I don't want to tempt fate on it. But uh, yeah, we have actually um, talked about this a few times at conferences and presented this data. Uh, yeah, we, um, we're interested in uh, – it's really a thought experiment. It comes from the ideas of uh, philosophers like Derek Parfit, uh, but also H.G. Uh, Wells and, and even Star Trek to some extent. And this is the idea about transporter machines malfunctioning uh, and making identical duplicates. And that's a kind of interesting idea. If you, if you imagine that you could create a machine which could copy you down to the, you know, the individual molecule and atom, um, would this individual have the same mind? Well, if you're a materialist like I am, and I believe the mind is not a spiritual thing, I think it's a product of a very complex uh, biological computer that we call the brain, then it must be the same. But then, of course, that introduces all sorts of paradoxes. So we took this idea um, about the idea of duplicating and uh, we wanted to test when do children start to have this idea that, or, or share the notion that many adults have that you can't duplicate the mind. Um, and what we did is we convinced them we have these two 
kind of scientific looking boxes with lots of lights and wires and buzzes and noises. And um, we put a, a toy in one and we'd start the machine up. And then the second box after a couple of seconds would start by itself. And then when you open it up, there's an identical toy in the other uh, compartment. So they now see two toys and the children spontaneously think, oh, this must be like a photocopier for objects. Now, these are these are five year olds. Uh, so they're quite, you know, we can, they're quite gullible, but that's not the point of the experiment. The point is to convince them that we've got a machine which can copy anything. And we ask them, are they say the same? And they say, yes, absolutely identical. Then comes the interesting part. Then we introduce them to our pet hamster. And uh, we tell them a few things about the hamster. We say that it's got, um, I don't know, it's got marble in its tummy and it's got a broken tooth. Um, and then we show it a picture or we whisper the name. So we're giving the hamster physical states, you know, marble in the tummy, but also mental states, you know, telling it a name or showing it a picture. So we pop the hamster into one side of the, the machine, turn it on again, and lo and behold, when we t- open up the second compartment, there are now two identical-looking hamsters. In fact, they're, they're Russian hamsters that we, you know, they're, they're siblings that we have. And by the way, it's all an illusion. It's a trick. There's someone feeding in stuff in the back. We don't actually have a duplicating okay. machine. Good, good. As much as I would like, I wouldn't be sitting here doing that. I'd be sitting on piles of gold and diamonds. Right. But um, no, it's, it's an illusion. Uh, but it, gets, it allows you to kind of, um, it allows you to create a demonstration to get at what is really a difficult thought idea, you know, a thought experiment that, that you know, what, you know, can you duplicate a hamster? So the question we then ask them, does this hamster have the same physical attributes as the first hamster? Does it have the same mental attributes? And what, we're, what we found is that certainly by five, six years of age, children are already showing um, the, the, the attribution that it doesn't have the same mind. It can have the same physical parts. So they understand that physical things can be duplicated, but they're thinking the mind must be something separate. And the effect is even stronger when you give the first hamster a name, an identity. And I think that fits very much with what um, adults think as well, that there's something um, wrong about the idea that you can have somebody else who has exactly the same mind. And so duplication we're we're, we're allow you know we're happy to think that can happen for physical things, but not for mental states. So this is what we call um, dualism, mind body dualism, the idea that the mind is separate to the body, and that of course fits with uh, Descartes, the philosopher in the 17th century, who talked about the mind and body being separate. So yeah, we we uh, we use experiments to tease out these uh, ideas, these complex ideas, and when they start to emerge in children. So would you say your uh, research lends credit to the idea that? that sense of dualism, the sense that the self is some sort of um, extra physical uh, thing is part of our, our natural intuition or is it something that's influenced by culture? Oh, I think it's part of our natural intuition. I think that um, there's a good distinction you can draw when talking about the self uh, between the I and the me. And this is a distinction that William James drew. So uh, our conscious awareness, you know, your listeners as they're listening to my voice and thinking about the, the odd things I'm saying, that is the I experience of the self. That's the conscious appraisal. Um, but if I was to ask each listener, you know, tell me where you were born, what did you have for lunch yesterday? That's the me. That's the autobiographical memory. And so the I and the me, I think, are, 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 are separate types of ideas. Now, I think that I is there very early. Um, and and I, I would hazard a guess that babies 
as soon as they're moving around and becoming aware of their perceptual world around them, they're experiencing that consciously. Um, but I'm not convinced that they have a me. I don't think they have an autobiographical sense of who they are. And frankly, how could they when they're only a couple of minutes old? Um, when you ask people what's their earliest memories, it's uh, well known that very few people can remember anything before their second birthday. So I think that the sense of self, the me, um, starts to emerge as children start to become, get a sense of their own self-identity. So self is, is, allows you to construct um, a narrative of who you are, where you've been, and how it all fits together as a story of who you are. So both the, the I and the me are aspects of the self, but they involve different components in a sense. So when you use the word illusion, are you saying that the, the self doesn't exist or that are you saying that the self is an, a concept and a construct, it's just an idea? And that- yeah, it, it's a construct. It's a, it's, it's a narrative generated by the brain. It's a characterization which allows you to make sense of things and plan and actually interact with each other because you couldn't inter- interact with a multitude of influences. Uh, it would just be overwhelming for a brain. So we, we have this sense of identities and, and self. Um, but I should point out that, you know, illusions can still be very real in the brain. So I, I think I talk about that in the opening, uh, showing that a, a typical visual illusion is one of these ones where you see a, a square which actually isn't really there. It's just made out of the, the contours of all the shapes around it. Now, the, the, the spooky thing is, is that if you go into the brain, you can find, um, pat, you know, you can find networks of neurons which are firing to that imaginary square. So the brain... Um, is still registering it, even though objectively it isn't out there in the world. So I think that that's something that is quite mind-blowing, that you know, even though something isn't actually there, if you're perceiving it, then the brain is treating it as if it could be. So why did we um, evolve this uh, self-illusion? What advantage does it provide us broadly? Yeah, well, I think this is, um, a, well, there, if we talk about the I and the me again, I think the I, that the conscious awareness, is a way of keeping track of the outcomes of all the unconscious processes that are driving our behaviors. So we feel the author, you know, the authorship of action. We feel we are the ones instigating. We are making the choices and decisions. Of course, there are lots of unconscious processes which are feeding into that decision-making all the time, yet we feel consciously that we are doing it. And so this enables us to keep track of the multitude of hidden processes. And that's you know, that's how we know what we like and what our preferences are and what we don't like. So that's the I. Um, when it comes to the me, again, I think having a characterization of who you are allows you to interact and know what you like and plan for the future. So having this sort of summary of, of experiences, both in terms of the unconscious processes which you know, feed into every decision you, you've made, and also a kind of narrative or autobiography of who you are, uh, just makes life a lot easier to live, having these sort of summaries. So um, why do we not see this sort of um, uh, self-illusion in other animals? Why does it seem to be something that's primarily human? Well, we don't know that for sure, do we? Because, I mean, that, it's getting to the, the question of, of measuring conscious awareness. And, you know, as much as we'd like to try, we really can't get inside the, the, the consciousness of, of animals. And I suspect, like many other thinkers, that there's a varying degree of consciousness. I don't think that worms are conscious or aphids are conscious. But okay. I can imagine that, you know, as you move up the, the animal tree, that you start to approximate, approximate more uh, what it is to have human consciousness. But uh, it wouldn't be the same as, as a chimpanzee's or, or, you know, a gazelle. Um, they're clearly consciousness, uh, and I don't know where it came from or how it evolved, um, so I haven't got the answer for that, 
but um, it is something that uh, we use very effectively to you know, plan our actions. It gives us a lot of flexibility in our control of behavior um, and, and to be adaptive, which is something that other animals generally don't have. Okay, so since we're in this, uh, we've wandered off into the realm of speculation. Okay, sorry, yeah, go on. No, no, I, I, uh, since you're a super expert in this, I would love to hear your thoughts on um, one of my favorite concepts in science fiction. Do you, mm-hmm. do you think that perhaps a similarly complex interconnected network uh, could give rise to consciousness and be self-aware like a very complex AI or something yeah. like that? Do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd have to say I agree with you um, because this, I, I, I'm a materialist, so I don't believe that uh, there are spirits and souls. And if you are a materialist and you believe the brain is a very complex system of of structures and, and neur- neural networks, and frankly, you know the, the number of potential patterns is you know almost infinite. You can't say infinite, but it's almost infinite. Uh, then yes, uh, there's no reason why a sufficiently sophisticated system could become self-aware. Um, because otherwise you'd have to have a non-materialist account, which would then introduce um, pixie dust and and spooks and souls and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And whilst they may exist, I'm not denying that they don't exist. I just haven't seen any reliable good evidence for them. And we do know that if you change the brain, you change the self. Uh, So there's there's a lot of good evidence for materialism and precious little for non-materialism. But don't get me wrong. I mean... um, I might, that might sound very reductionist, and people don't like reductionism. They don't like the idea that you're simply kind of you know, a meat machine. Um, we're a very complex meat machine because we're a machine which has evolved in a sea of meat machines. You know, our brains are sharing information, which is why we have such a long childhood. If you think about it, we have proportionally the longest childhood of any animal on this planet. And I don't think that's just so we can play football or sit around loofing about. It's because we need to learn to become selves. We need to learn to become socialized, to become integrated. So we're sharing information, and that information is non-material, clearly, because this is uh, this is this is uh, it doesn't have a material base. It's word of mouth, it's imitation, it's instruction, it's knowledge, and that's the information which has been distributed on these on these brains that uh, each of us have. So um, it's I I don't find it as as reductionist as people. Uh, initially think when they hear this. It, it's much more the case that we're a very integrated uh, system. And, you know, I think we're one of the most social animals on the planet that way. I like uh, I like the label of meat machine. I'm going to use that. That's uh... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I didn't think. I think it was Marvin Minsky, the AI. Uh, that's why when you mentioned AI, I immediately thought of Marvin. Yeah, they're, made uh, of, they're made of meat. Oh. We're made of meat. Yeah, we're <laughs> meat sheets. We're, we're wet and squishy. <laughs> So uh, when we see two identical twins and we mm. no- and we notice that they have different personalities, what yep. it, and if we know the self is an illusion, then what is it that we're actually noticing in, in there in that situation? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, what, what, you know, why isn't the case? Because in part in the book, I make a big argument that because we are social animals, we're socially constructed. So you know, a lot of the aspects of who we are really stand in stark reflection to those around us. You know, the way that we evaluate our self-esteem, for example, is by comparing ourselves to others. And of course, that varies from culture to culture. In the West, we're very individualistic. And so when I say that, you know, we're socially constructed narratives, people say, well, how come then kids, how come twins aren't, you know, uh, you know, why, why are they not, um, you know, how, how come children are so different? 
Uh, and so then we get into the whole issue about genetics and so forth. Um, well, clearly genes and temperaments, and you do inherit a lot in your biology. I'm not denying there is a component which is, is nativist. You know, there's a component which we, we inherit. But that is, um, always plays out in a social environment. And if it was the case that it was always genetic, then identical twins should be absolutely identical on everything. And yet they're not. Um, on all measures of personality, they're generally no more than 50% um, the same. So there's a lot of variance, even with genetically identical individuals, which suggests that the environments are playing uh, an important role. Um, so I think that uh, you know, there's, there's got to be an explanation of the combination of the biology, what, you're, what you get from your parents, and the environments in which you're raised. And I explore this to some extent in the book, talking about the differences between concepts of self in the Far East and, and in the West, because they are different. Now, could you uh, speak more to that? What, is, what are mm. some of the differences of self the, from culture to culture? Okay, so if you just, if I say, you know, you, you know uh, David, tell me about yourself. Uh, as a typical uh, Westerner, you will probably um, describe yourself in terms of attributes and what you own, things like that, for example, uh, your, your hobbies. Um, if you pose that question to people um, who don't live in individualistic societies, uh, more collectivist, which typically is in the Far East, but you don't even have to go to the Far East. In Africa, for example, there are some tribes that are very collectivist. Um, so, for example, they wouldn't value individual objects in the way that we do. We use objects as a way of kind of extending ourselves. This was a claim that's been made by William James again. But other, other marketing people have, have known that we buy things uh, to signal to others who we think we are. You know, we're, we're using this as a way of, mm -hmm. of um, yeah, advertising who we are. Um, in collect collectivist societies, if I said, tell me about yourself, they're much more likely to describe themselves in terms of the, their colleagues uh, the, the communal activities. So they, they see themselves embedded uh, much more socially than an individualistic society. Now, that doesn't mean their brains are different. It's just the way they're used to talking about themselves. But here's an interesting fact. Um, you know, I was telling you about infantile amnesia, amnesia, that you can't remember things from your early childhood. Right. Well, if you try that same test with children from the East, they're much better. They have a much better memory about their early childhood. Hmm. And it turns out that one of the interesting ideas is that because... Um, the parents speak to them uh, and talk to them uh, about their day much earlier, you know, and they will describe it and you know who they did what with whom. Uh, what they're doing is they're helping the child construct their identity, and I think when you uh, facilitate that uh, identity through the narrative telling, uh, that enables you to link all the facts together in a more meaningful way, and that's why I think they've got a bit much richer sense of of who they are. So that's that's intriguing. That's amazing. Um what, you also talk in the book about um, uh, the um, this very specific illusion. Uh, you actually write that you say that our self exists uh, or, or yourself exists as the reflection the world holds up to us. Mm. Could you, could you uh, help uh, help on, uh, me understand that? Concept? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. Uh, actually, you know, I, I had a, happened to have a chance reading over your blog, by the way, and I <laughs> I see you had a uh, you you did a piece on Baumeister and ego depletion. Right. Right. Uh, a fascinating piece, by the way, <laughs> and I'm not just sucking up to you. It's really, really, really <laughs> no. well. Oh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> but you talk about ostracism there, and um, this is a this is a really important thing. What, you know, one of the most important things to 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 us as a social species is not to be excluded. Now, I know there's some people who don't like other people and they're hermits, but they're the exception. They're not. They're the weirdos. Okay, the rest of us want to be accepted, and so we will do anything 
to ingratiate ourselves into the group. And how we feel about ourselves, our happiness is is reflected by those around us. We're so sensitive to criticism. We're, you know, one of the greatest um, anxieties that uh, people have, and this is based on data from the American Psychiatric Association, is public speaking. Speaking in public is one of the greatest fears that people have because they fear that they're going to be evaluated. And, and the fear of rejection is so much that we, we just, you know, we can't abide that. So our self is a constant characterization of how we would like to be seen by other people. So that's what I, I mean by the reflected self. That we, and, and we will shift that, of course. We will change um, the, the nature of that character depending on the circumstances. So I, I talk about multiple selves, not to say that there are actually individual selves, but just the way that that characterization can shift from context to context. And I think that explains uh, a lot of anomalies. It explains, for example, when people say, I wasn't myself last night. Mm. Well, if you weren't yourself, then who were you? Or if you say, oh, it was the wine talking. Well, wine doesn't talk, does it? Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, when we do things which are out, so out of character with the characterization, then we try to excuse it and say that it's not who I really am. But I think, again, that this is a problem of the way that we think about the self as as an individual. Yeah, this is yeah. if you have a and this is just my speculation, but you have a character that you uh, aspire to be. And whenever you fall short of that, that's when you get that icky feeling and you need to explain it to yourself and other people. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you saw, there's a book, it's just out by, I think it's uh, Bonnie Ware or something like that. She's an Australian palliative nurse. So she looks after the terminally ill. And I think it's called Five Regrets of Dying, where she basically interviewed all these people who were on their deathbeds about if they had any regrets. And the number one regret by far, was the sense that people didn't think that they had been themselves and that they were always trying to please other people. So, you know, when you have the clarity of death looming, people sort of look back over their lives and they, they realize the extent to which they have been living a life shaped by others around them. That's so fascinating. I had a, a, a sociology professor once tell us, tell the class, be careful when you label people because people tend to fulfill the labels that they're exposed to. Absolutely. Yeah. And that work on ostracism, it's fantastic. You know, people, um, when they're ostracized, will become obsequious. They'll do anything to try and ingratiate themselves back into the group. And we've seen that happen. And, and frankly, you know, that's what the problem of teenagers are. Teenagers are. Um, they're trying to establish their self-identity. They've got the pecking order. And that's why they become so self-conscious. It's why boys take risks. You know, it's nothing to do with this uh, brain being immature. I've heard this before. I mean, there might be some brain maturation, but I think it's more to do with the need to establish establish yourself as, as, as you know, bravado uh, and, and need to get yourself different to your parents. In a sense, trying to find who you are is really trying to, you know, stake your territory out as being different to your parents, why, which is mm-hmm. why teenage rebellion is so common in the West, because this is what is culturally what we're supposed to do. And then that also explains why you turn into your parents when you reach your mid-20s. <laughs> your biology wins out. <laughs> that's true. Oh, my God, I am my dad. That happens a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me uh, ask one last question before we uh, sum everything up, because this is something I have noticed. I've, you see videos like this on uh, on YouTube. Um, when you undergo anesthesia, mm. you can really feel what you what I would assume is my sense of self slipping away. And, mm. if, you, and if you're someone who is sort of babysitting a person who's getting an operation, you can actually watch as they wake up mm, their, their sense of self return to them what is it that we're that we're experiencing what is it that we're seeing in those situations well you can see it with just morning i'm mean, waking up every morning it's kind of weird that you know you you kind of lose your consciousness every night and, and somehow the brain reconstructs that character in the morning well we lead fairly structured lives so there's lots of information out there um although I, i'm sure every listener's had that experience where they've woken up in a strange place 
and they just feel that uh, sense of anxiety. You know, when you've, uh, you've, you suddenly find yourself in a new environment, that can be a very anxiety-inducing situation. But yeah, I mean, whether it's it, it's through anesthetic or it, it's uh, sleepness or drunkenness, um, yeah, the brain can generally recreate the characterization of the self. Uh, equally, of course, you can see it fractionate under the influence of drugs, under uh, the influence of um, of, of various, uh, you know, um, psychedelics, uh, even alcohol. You know, people's um, behavior changes, which is, by the way, when anesthetics, people start, you know, swearing and doing all sorts of things and they become disinhibited because you've basically turned off the frontal lobes. The frontal lobes are the structures which make us so different from the nearest cousins, the chimpanzees. And these are the mechanisms which regulate our behavior. So if you think about all the unconscious processes, the drives, the urges, the need to swear at people, whatever, they're generally kept under wraps um, by your frontal lobes. Uh, but when you switch those off, then these behaviors come to the come to the fore. But yeah, generally your brain can reconstruct that character, but that's a constant process of reconstruction. And as we get older, of course, you see the progressive loss of that characterization in dementia. Um, that's, I think, one of the most distressing aspects of the disease is that people that you've known in your life suddenly become a different person as mm -hmm. parts of their brain start to break down. So again, I keep coming back to this, this imperative that it must be an, an emergent property of, of the meat machine, which is, is the brain. It's so odd, though, that you, that you can, as you go into unconsciousness or you watch, mm. or you watch someone go into unconsciousness, you would, it, you would think that it's all, it, it, uh, if it was a very simple machine, you were just hitting the reset button on, yeah. on their uh, personality. And so when they return to consciousness, mm. then perhaps they would be slightly different as a, as a self. But it's, it's as if uh, as all the systems come back online, the self mm. that you're used to seeing, you're used to experiencing returns back in full force with nothing lost. It's a... Yeah, it is. But I mean, of course, the changes are subtle. I mean, it does change. Your self changes over the lifetime. And, you know, you, you only have to read things that you wrote when you were 16 or <laughs> you, know, you, you can suddenly you don't recognize. It. I mean, there is a sense of continuity. And that's one thing I talk about the book. You do, And that's why the sense of self is so compelling. Um, because it's always with us when we're conscious and, you know, we don't feel that we're changing as such. But on one level, we do know we are changing because, you know, we've, we've all experienced that. But the brain has a whole set of biases uh, to try and reframe and keep that uh, continuity of self all the time. So, for example, um, cognitive dissonance. You know, we generally think of ourselves uh, as um, a lot smarter than most people, better looking than most people, and a better sense of humor. Uh, we're all above average, but we can't all be above average. So when we do things which don't fit with that characterization, we reframe it uh, just so we maintain the continuity. So, for example, if you're in a relationship that doesn't work out, usually, not everyone, by the way, but, you know, if it doesn't work out, you'll say, oh, the other person was a jerk, you know, or I didn't want that job anyway. So you just reframe everything to fit with this, this characterization that, of someone who doesn't waste time or effort on jobs or people. Um, so we, we've got these uh, ways of changing the story to tweaking it all the time to keep it consistent. Well, so if people are super interested in you and they want to know more about what you're up to, how could they find you on the uh, internet? Oh, I'm all over the place. I'm like a bad rash. Um, <laughs> well, uh, what they might find really interesting are the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures, which I delivered on the BBC in the, in the UK. This is the biggest kind of uh, science lecture for a general public. In fact, it's aimed at teenagers. So if they Google me and, and Royal Institution, they'll, they'll get to that page. Of course, I have a book out, The Self-Illusion, which is uh, getting, you know, it's, it, I think it's really working. I think people are, uh, are, are really interested by it because I just assumed that these things were so obvious, but, you know, you tend to when you get specialized, you forget 
what is common sense knowledge and, and, and what is expertise. So that's that book's around. But yeah, I'm I'm on YouTube and so I'm 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 around. You'll find me quite easily. And what and what are you working on right now scientifically? Ah, oh, well, I'm doing a couple things. I'm working with Ardman, you know, the production company who made um, the uh, who make the movies, or the animations for Pixar. Well, they don't work with Pixar, but they work with Spielberg. Uh, Ardman are a Bristol-based company, so we're analyzing children's interpretation, understanding of cartoons, uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, I am doing another book um, called Brainstorming, which is due in. Uh, January, and then I'm off to the Far East in July to, um, to film the uh, t- television series for the, uh, the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures for the Japanese and, and also in Singapore. So, yeah, I've got a busy summer. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I love everything you're up to. Uh, I, I consider you a kindred spirit out there in the world. And um, just thank you so much. And if you ever need anything from us, just let us know. Thank you, David. It was a lot of fun. Same here. Okay, now it's time for cookies. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And you can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. If I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe in the winter and um, everything else. Uh photos of the finished product, all that stuff, up at youarenotsosmart.com, as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. Okay. So this week's recipe and the study, crispy and chewy chocolate oatmeal cookies and a close look at therapeutic touch. The cookie comes from Andrea Neosi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, married to Michael Burke, and the study comes from Linda Rosa, Emily Rosa, Larry Sarner, Stephen Barrett. Now, this cookie, this recipe came with an email that said, uh, my husband is a big fan of you are not so smart and I have no idea what that is. So, but he just told me to send him a, send you a cookie recipe. So I have, so she's done this and I thank you very much, Andrea. I hope you become a fan of you are not so smart, but this, um, the email also went on to say that this cookie is sort of a secret recipe, but it's so good. It needs to be released out into the world. And so we're going to put that to the test. So, uh, and, uh, (laughs) Uh, many people have emailed and said that they are strangely disgusted by the uh, by hearing someone um, eat food on the air. So uh, this is something that does not bother me, and uh, but I recognize that there are people who uh, this blows their mind and they hate it. So I, in deference to your uh, disgust, I will not do that ever again. But uh, we are going to taste this cookie. Let me tell you what it looks like. It is. Um, it looks, it's oatmeal and uh, chocolate chip cookie, and it it looks really beautiful. It's very um, um, textured. It's, it's got it's got lots of uh, dimples all over it, and it looks almost like maybe a rice crispy treat um, in cookie format. But um, here we go. Let's let's just taste this thing and see what it's all about. Here we go. Mm-hmm. Chewing away from the microphone. Mm. Okay. So here, here are my here are my first thoughts, initial immediate thoughts. Very very airy, and um, but mixed with crunchy all throughout. So that means, um, and it's a chocolate chip cookie, so it's super amazing. Um, let me hold on. Glory be this cookie in my face. Um, it's super good, but. 
the main thing about it is it's very light. So, um, it almost tastes like it's aerated. So it tastes like something that you couldn't make at home. That it, it would have to be made by some sort of professional, like, like large scale manufacturing process or something because it's, uh, it seems aerated, but it's, it's, God, it's super good. It's, it's very chocolatey. It's got brown sugar and, uh, butter and, uh, and, uh, oatmeal and, um, a crisp rice cereal and all sorts of other stuff. I highly recommend this thing. And this is going to fuel my brain as we go and look at this study, um, in the journal of, um, the American Medical Association, and the name of the study is A Close Look at Therapeutic Touch. And this is a really famous study in the annals of, um, of psychology because it was conducted by a nine-year-old girl. And the way, the, the, basically the story behind this is that Emily Rosa um, and, and her mother was a, was a nurse, and Emily Rosa had heard of this thing called therapeutic touch, and she was very skeptical of it. And... Uh, in 19, uh, the, her study was published in 1998. She did this study as her fourth grade science project and it debunked something that had become a plague in the, um, in the American, um, hospital and clinic in American hospitals and clinics. So what is therapeutic touch? Okay. So basically what happens is a person comes in and there's a person who's suffering from a disease or an illness or, um, pain or something. And the therapeutic touch practitioner puts their hands just above the body of the person who is receiving this treatment. So they're like uh, just an inch above the person's body. And they're floating along as if they're like pushing uh, water out of the way or something. And what they say they're doing and is that they are taking the energies of the universe that are misaligned or clogged up or whatever in the person's body. And they're... Um, they're straightening them out or they're pushing them away or they're pulling out the bad stuff. So they claim to make a person who is sick well by using this sort of mystical, um, magical ability to adjust a human energy field. Now, the problem with all that is that none of this is possibly true. There is no such thing as some human energy field that can be manipulated. There are no energies of the universe that can become misaligned in a human body. There are no auras or anything like that. Well, at least there, um, there's not a lot of scientific evidence that lends, um, itself to the conclusion that these things exist. So, um, that being said, what we have here is a study that was conducted by a nine-year-old child and it got published in this journal and she became the youngest person to ever be um, uh, published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. And it's, it's just really awesome in every way. So um, here's what she did. She took, um, I'm going to read right from the abstract of the study right now. So she says that therapeutic touch is a widely used nursing practice rooted in mysticism, but alleged to have a scientific basis. Practitioners of therapeutic touch claim to treat many medical conditions by using their hands to manipulate a human energy field perceptible above the patient's skin. And then it goes on to, to describe the design. They took 21 practitioners uh, with therapeutic touch experience, some with 27 years of experience, and they tested them under blind conditions to determine whether they could correctly identify which hand was closest to the investigator's hand. 14 practitioners were tested 10 times each and seven practitioners were tested 20 times each. Now here's, here's how they did it. Um, she basically just took a cardboard box and cut holes, uh, at the bottom of the box for the person to put their hands through. And then the box was tall enough that the, 
um, therapeutic touch practitioner could not see the other side. And they also put a towel over the holes so they couldn't possibly see through the holes uh, either. And this little girl on the other side, she would flip a coin and uh, decide whether or not to pick the right or left hand. And then she would hold her hand just above the therapeutic touch practitioner's hand and say, okay, which hand, in which hand do you feel my energy field? And then the person would say, left, right, whatever. And she would mark it down whether or not what they said and if they were correct. So most people were very confident going in and very confident during the process. But um, the results of the study, practitioners of therapeutic touch identified the correct hand in only 123 of 280 trials, which is 44%. Uh, and therefore, a 44% rate of accuracy is less than chance, which means it's not real. So she thoroughly debunked therapeutic touch and it was known for, is now known to be not real and has been debunked by science. But here's the, here's the crazy thing about this. Um, it didn't destroy therapeutic touch. Um, I mean, first of all, it's amazing that it took a study, uh, to, to reveal this to people that this isn't real. But on top of that, even though the study was performed, it, it didn't harm anything. The therapeutic touch survived. Not just a few years ago, I think there were around 80,000 practitioners of therapeutic touch. I don't know what the numbers are today. Um, but I do know that if you just look it up online, you will find that there are some places where you can get nursing credits, uh, you know, uh, course credits for taking therapeutic touch classes. And there are still plenty of practitioners of therapeutic touch in uh, hospitals today, even though this, um, this was huge news when it came out. It was on the New York Times and Time Magazine, and it was in um, on 2020, mainly because it was this little girl who uh, became the youngest person ever to have this, uh, a, you know, a study published in a journal. But it also helped uh, bring skepticism out into the open and show that you can indeed you can put many of the things that we think of as um, alternative medicine or um, things that come from the realm of the beyond. They can be put to scientific, uh, they can put up against uh, scientific scrutiny. And uh, when they do, they, they pretty much always fail. So there you go. Therapeutic touch and a wonderful cookie. Um, if you want to read more about Emily Rosa, she's a really cool person who just recently graduated and is now an adult who is a psychologist. So thank you, Emily, for a wonderful study. That concludes this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, you can go over to youarenotsosmart.com and learn more. The opening music is by Caravan Palace. The name of the song is Clash, and you can buy their stuff online, and you should. The music beds come from Blackguard SMG, and they also offer their goods and services online. If you'd like to advertise on the You Are Not So Smart podcast, just drop me an email at david at youarenotsosmart.com.